0: Well, here we are, finally, at the end of Galatians chapter 4 this morning. As you know, I had to postpone preaching it for a few weeks because I really needed, quite honestly, more time. It's a really difficult passage. And before you start judging me here questioning what I've been doing with my time. What's going on, Daniel? Why didn't you preach this weeks ago? I'm not the only one who has wrestled with the complexities here in this passage. John MacArthur quips, some say it's the most difficult passage in the New Testament, and that you've probably never heard a sermon on these verses, because no one would just choose to preach it on their own, but basically have to be forced into preaching it. I could kind of relate to that here as these are the next verses ahead in our series. And these verses are certainly not my go to passage uh, because, at face value, you see, they seem kind of obscure. It could be difficult. What does this mean? And what does this mean for me? But let me encourage you that I have grown in my appreciation, church, not only of these verses that we're going to see today, but also how they drive home. What the Apostle Paul has been arguing the whole time up to this point in his letter. Or as one scholar put it, this section serves as the capstone of Paul's argument that he started back in chapter 3 of verse 1. But in order for us to grasp it, we're going to have to put our thinking caps, as Alistair Begg, the pastor, once joked. Because the the argument, you see, it's just quite involved. That's why it took me weeks to marinate in it and think through it. And it takes us all the way back into the Old Testament. Listen to the well-known preacher, Alistair Begg, as he once coached his congregation years ago. And as he said this, as it relates to this passage, he says, These are the most difficult verses in the whole book of Galatians. If you are looking for a little ditty, as Alistair says in his accent, if you're looking for a little ditty or a sermonette for Christianettes, I have bad news for you because it's not going to be. And if you have already unscrewed your thinking faculties and placed them metaphorically under your seat, then reach back under the seat and bring them back up and screw them in place or else... Just bail out completely because these verses demand our careful attention. And they are not irrelevant, he said. So, with Pastor Alistair Beg's humorous encouragement, let's read the passage together with our thinking caps on. And would you stand with me now for the reading of God's holy and inspired word to see our first point in number one, lost slavery, or Hagar, versus faith, freedom, Or Sarah. Galatians 4 in verses 21 through 31. See it with me now. It says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. One by the slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. While the son of the free woman was born through Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You may be seated. Now where do I even start? And I don't want to overcomplicate this for us. Because that's my job here, and it's been my job for the last month wrestling through this difficult passage, to take the complicated and to hopefully make it clear for us. So let's first start with this whole idea of allegory that we see here in the passage. It's what Paul appeals to. Did you notice that? By allegory, I want to clarify here, we don't have to think of some secret Trick interpretation that only Paul was able to see. Like crazy trick shots you see on YouTube. And they make this wonderful crazy shot bouncing off of a million different places. And you didn't even see it coming. And sometime it went into the hoop. That is not how we need to think of allegory here. But that is sometimes, let's just be honest, how we can think of allegory in a modern sense. Pointing to something that just is so obscure. You see something there and it it means something completely different that you can't even see. But from this biblical standpoint and how it's being used here, allegory here doesn't mean it's a secret and hidden meaning that only Paul can unlock for us all. It doesn't mean that. It means something figurative, something more like a symbolic illustration where there is something behind the events of the story being described. How do I know that? Well, because the depiction he brings up of Hagar and Sarah from Genesis 16 to 21 is about real, historic, biblical characters, right? Heard about them. You know Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac, and Hagar, and Ishmael. They're all real people that Paul is mentioning, and this depiction, this account in Genesis is a real account. So as D.A. Carson, the very, very respected and really helpful New Testament scholar points out, he says, Paul is convinced He is arguing from Scripture, and he rebukes the Galatians for not seeing what he sees in Scripture. For what he holds to be transparently there. Right there in Genesis is what he's even pointing out. It's there. So Paul isn't telling us some trick shot interpretation and this clever story. As Carson goes on to say, he says this. That is not what Paul is doing here. Paul is not saying, now... Let me give you a key that will explain the relevant Old Testament narratives. I'm just going to create a grid not found in the text of Genesis, right? And apply it to the text to make the answers come out on my side. That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that. Rather, as Carson says, he is saying it is in the Bible. Read the Bible. It's there. So what does this whole story of Hagar and Sarah mean? What was God using providentially in the Bible, in these real histories, in this real existence, in these real situations to reflect to us allegorically or symbolically or illustratively here? What was he pointing us to in Genesis? Well, that's a good question. And that's really the point of this entire passage in our time this morning. Paul shows us what these two women have always pointed us to. One of them pointed to slavery, and the other pointed to freedom. Even right now, can you guess which ones are which? Just think about that. We're going to see it more. We need to see it here from the text. On the slavery side, of course, as you probably guessed, it's Hagar. Abraham's concubine who was a Gentile Egyptian slave who had Abraham's first son, Ishmael, 14 years before Isaac was born. Now, the topic of slavery when we bring that up could be complex. If you remember back in a sermon I preached in, at the end of Galatians 3, we deal with that to make those distinctions. I'm not going to get into that now, but I point you to that to have a bigger picture of what was going on in biblical times. But Abraham's first son, Ishmael, 14 years before Isaac was born from Hagar, and she always, Hagar, pointed towards an illustrative direction and pointed towards in terms of this allegory and il- illustration to slavery. She always symbolized bondage in this way and even pointed towards the temporary mosaic law that Paul also tells us before, as we saw, was like a prison, Right? A guardian and manager. And basically no different than the era of slavery. That season. He says that. Remember, he says that when they were under the law, they were no different than slaves because they did not yet receive the inheritance and benefits that they had coming to them later. So that's one side. On the other side, you have Sarah, who was Abraham's wife and was not herself a slave like Hagar, And she was the recipient of the promise that God made with Abraham before they decided to get the slave woman and concubine Hagar involved. As you look at the text, you'll remember that. Remember, God promised children to Abraham and Sarah. They believed it. But then they misinterpreted and took matters into their own hand and got Hagar involved to have a child according to fleshly or sinful means rather than according to... Uh, Faith in God's promise and God's specific provision. They trusted God, but then later got off track. On that note, the whole idea of multiple wives and polygamy was not ever the invention or plan of God as we see in the beginning of Genesis. But it's a fleshly, sinful, faithless act of humans to do it their way and not God's way. Representing not freedom, but slavery. Slavery. So, you see, this is what God intended. It's what his purpose was of the Hagar and Sarah story from Genesis all along. Hagar to represent slavery and even fleshly bondage connected with the Mosaic law. And Sarah to represent the promise and the work and the spirit and grace. It's what they pointed to. Providentially, this was God's purposes in it all. As Ardell Cannaday nicely summarizes it, he says this. Paul reads Scripture's story of Abraham as historical narrative invested with symbolic representations embedded within the characters and the two contrasting births of two sons, one by natural order, the other by divine promise. Hence, the Genesis text itself, not Paul's interpretation of the text, is allegorical while simultaneously upholding the historical Authenticity of those characters and events. So God promised to Abraham and Sarah a son. They decided to make it happen outside of God's provision, that divine provision, because they were just thinking that, hey, we're we're just too old to have kids. It's impossible. You could kind of understand how they thought that. Because in reality, they were too old to have children. They were way past childbearing years. Of course, around 100. How many of you know 100-year-olds having babies this, at this point? Do we ever, have you ever had in the history of the First Baptist Church a baby shower for someone in their 90s or 100? Have you? Of course not. You, don't, you wouldn't think that that's possible, and neither did they. And it would take a miracle of God for them to conceive and have a son, you see. And they would one day have a child. Isaac would be born whose name meant laughter. Why? Because his very own mother, Sarah, laughed at the thought of having a child at her age. If someone told you in their 90s or 100 that they were pregnant and having a child, you might chuckle a little bit too. But God does the impossible to fulfill his promise and show that his promise is all of grace, all of him, and all from him. You can't get that wrong. In spite of Abraham and Sarah trying to make it their own and take it into their own hands, God intervenes and acts in a miraculous way. You might think, well, that's unfair. They were being sinful, right? And They they weren't trusting God fully and, you know, misunderstood and confused. And they got Hagar involved. And you might think that's unfair, but that's the point, church. Abraham was justified by grace through faith, not by works when he believed God. He didn't go on and be perfect in all his ways. He misunderstood things, didn't he? And so do we. We need to rely upon the grace of God not our own ingenuity. This is a big part of the point here for us. And just as we've seen before, Abraham has a very diverse offspring, doesn't he? Not according to physical descent alone, but he actually is the father, Father Abraham, to all who have faith in Christ, whether, as we saw in Galatians 3. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, whether male or Female. All through faith. Become children of Abraham. Through faith. Not ethnicity. Not what town you were born in. Not what age you are. Not how smart you are. But through faith according to promise. Do you have faith? Church. Do you trust Jesus for your salvation? If so. If you're a believer. If you believe these promises. It means As we've seen before, that Abraham is your father because you share in the same saving faith that he had years ago when he believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. When he was justified. Are you justified through faith, church? The only way that anybody could be forgiven or made right or justified is by believing like Abraham believed initially and was justified. And if you believe God by trusting in the promise of Jesus, who as we also saw earlier in Galatians 3, is the ultimate singular offspring that God has always pointed to as we saw there earlier in our series. If that's true of you, then not only is Abraham your father through faith, but Sarah also is your mother through faith. And Isaac your brother. For Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah all represent promise and faith. And the passage also adds here, don't miss this, that we are also citizens. Citizens not of an earthly Jerusalem, but of a heavenly Jerusalem from above. And all believers have awaiting for them the new heavens and earth, regardless of their ethnicity through faith. They are connected with the heavenly Jerusalem. Praise God for that if you're a Christian. Praise God for that. And on the other hand, you have Hagar and Ishmael, who represent not faith, but slavery. And not only do they represent human ingenuity and fleshly, do-it-yourself practices, but they also are connected to the very old covenant Mosaic law that the Judaizers were getting all excited about and trying to put the Galatian believers under themselves. They are not connected, these Judaizers, these false teachers, to the heavenly Jerusalem, but to the earthly present Jerusalem and to the Mosaic law. Now, they would pride themselves of having the law, and they would even pride themselves about Jerusalem. But make no mistake, they would never pride themselves of being connected to Hagar and Ishmael and slavery. But that's exactly what they are, relying on the old works of the law that have already been fulfilled. And do you see, this has been Paul's argument, really, through the whole letter, but then even especially as chapter 3 began, he says... You are foolish, Galatians, to allow yourself to be hoodwinked and bewitched by these false teachers and put yourself back under the law. The law is not a step forward. It's a step backwards, he keeps saying and showing them. He says, Paul says, don't you realize it's like a prison? Like a guardian? The era of slavery? I mean, the law doesn't save you. It was never intended to save but just reveals that you're huge sinners in need of a Savior, in need of Jesus. That's what the law's purpose was. It can't save you, and it cannot make you righteous. It cannot make you holy. It just exposes all your sin. This has been Paul's point as we see. And now he makes a connection with the well-known Genesis historical account and says, if you go back to the law... It would be like placing yourself into slavery after being set free. Paul is like, why would you want to do that kind of thing? It's so foolish. It makes no sense. Earth to the Galatians. Snap out of it. Come on. And these Judaizers, these false teachers, are not who they are claiming to be. They may claim Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. But in reality, because they are going back to the Mosaic Law... They have Hagar, the slave woman, as their mother. And Ishmael, the slave child, as their brother. They are enslaved. Don't follow them back to slavery, Paul says, because you have freedom in Christ. He has come now. So embrace your freedom. We saw this also in Galatians 4, as God, what, sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, So that they are no longer under law, but what? Under grace. No longer a slave, but what? A son adopted into God's family. An heir who will receive the promises. It's coming to them, as we saw in Galatians 4. So, going back to slavery is foolish. I mean, you've heard about some of those stories maybe, haven't you? Of people that have been in jail for a long time. And then they were released after serving their time. But they were so used to prison that they intentionally committed another crime to go back to jail. Have you ever heard of anything like that? That's the kind of foolishness that anyone deceived enough to actually decide to go back to the Mosaic Law is really displaying. It's crazy. Don't do that, Paul says. That's what the Judaizers were duping and tricking the Galatian Christians into. And that the Galatians were in the middle of sinfully being tempted towards that false gospel, those false Realities. Don't do that. As Matthew Harmon put it, Paul sees the desires of some to keep the Mosaic Law as an effort to return to submission to something that no longer has authority over them because they have died to the law through faith in Christ. So this whole section is just another argument from Paul Pleading with the Galatians to not go back. Don't go back to the law. And I realize that all of that is a lot to take in. I get that. But it all boils down here to two sides as we've been seeing. As Derek Thomas nicely and memorably puts it into a chart. And I'm going to end this complicated point here with this chart so we can see it. And you can see it on the screen. Two sides. Here are the six sets of two sides from Derek Thomas there. It says, and you can see them here, and let's see them together. Two mothers, Hagar and Sarah. Two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Two covenants, Mosaic and Abrahamic. And, and I would add, further pointing to, of course, that future fulfilling in the new covenant. Okay? Two mountains, Sinai and Zion. Two cities, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. Two conditions, bondage and slavery. So look, that's a lot there to take in, right? I get that. And that's what Alistair Begg got us all to put our thinking caps on for. But what does this all mean for us, church? I mean, Paul has been hammering home this point that we are not under law, but under grace through faith. And this is just another example of that here. But what else is going on? What is the driving and taking home point that the Galatian believers were to to hold to and, and, and apply here? And that we should apply as well. This leads us now to our second point. And number two, anticipate legalistic persecution. Look with me in your Bibles again to Galatians 4 and verses 28 through 29. Now you brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Now you see what this whole detailed and very shocking allegory or example of the true underlying symbolic meaning of the hagar and sarah story is about what it's all about and remember just think about this this is a scandalizing story for the hearers no one would have necessarily saw it it was in the text but certainly the jews wouldn't see it and and certainly the galatians weren't seeing it then why because they were following these false teachers down a bad bad path so they weren't seeing it they'd be scandalized by it shocking But here's the point, and notice here in verse 28, he's addressing them as brothers to summarize his point. So Paul brings up the symbolic meaning that Genesis 16 through 21 always pointed to in order to warn and point out to the Galatian believers the insidious poison and persecution of the false teaching Judaizers and what they're all about. He points it right to them, don't you see? This is always how it's been. This is how it has been happening. Paul reminds them that way back when, Ishmael, the son of the slave woman Hagar, persecuted or even mocked his younger brother of the promised Isaac years before. And that since Paul connects the Judaizers to to Hagar, that's his connection. That's, That's what he has for them. He connects them to the Mosaic law, to the earthly Jerusalem, to slavery. He sees in these false teachers an Ishmael-like persecution and persecutors of these Galatian believers, even though they seemed to really like. These Galatians seemed to really like the false teachers and even to reject their friend and truth-teller, Paul himself, even because he was telling them the truth. They liked these false persecutors better. They didn't see them in the great persecution that was coming upon them. Paul is like, look, friends, come back to me. Come back to the truth. These false teachers are just seeking to put you into bondage and slavery all over again. They want to manipulate you. They want to flatter you, as we saw last time. They want to enslave you. And in fact, putting you back under the Mosaic law right now at that point in biblical history, Paul is like, that is manipulating. That is manipulation itself. And we can see that, right, based on Paul's argument. I mean, if we all just rewinded back to the time of the giving of the law, we see good purposes in the law and what it was meant for originally, right? We all see that. It's not like the Mosaic law was contrary to God's working in promises. It's not like it was just evil and wrong and sinful. No, Paul makes it clear that that is not, the law is not the problem here. But he also makes it clear that the law was temporary for a season. Only until the fullness of time had come. Until Jesus was born, right? So in its time, the law, that Mosaic law, and all its rules and animal slaughtering and and all these different things in the temple, all of the things in the law, all those things that we see, it was for a good purpose. But now, if you go back to that old way, After Jesus has come, it's like putting yourself under bondage and slavery, and it's only a bad thing for Christians or the Galatians or anybody to ever be pursuing now, now that Jesus has come. The law in its time pointed forward to Jesus. But going back to the law after Jesus came is legalistic, and it's anti-gospel. It's contrary to the gospel. And it hurts you, and it was hurting the Galatians. Did you know that legalism, false teaching, hurts Christians? Do you realize that? It hurt these believers in Galatia because they were being persecuted even though they didn't see it, even though they were drawn to this false teaching like a moth to the flame, ignorant, ...of what they were really getting themselves into. They basically said, peace out to Paul. Taken off now to an apostle. I'm done with your gospel. I'm going towards these new, fresh teachers that came to town. And it seemed like these manipulative, flattering, false teachers... ...were good to them and for them. But that's because they were just being manipulated and hoodwinked and deceived. They were all confused. But Paul said here, in his clincher argument that they are only sons of Hagar, those false teachers, brothers of Ishmael, in bondage and slavery to the law, and the earthly Jerusalem. Paul says they are not your friends, as they claim. You, however, Paul says to the Galatians, must see the persecution of the legalists, must see that you are no longer children, you're not children of the slave, slave Hagar like them, but children of the free promise who received grace through the Spirit and not by works of the law. This is his driving argument. And all these Judaizers are just simply cursed law keepers who are under a curse because they rely on works of the law for their salvation as we have seen. They're falling off that mountain without a rope, without a harness, down to their doom. They're cursed, Paul tells them. Don't go there with them. Don't be cursed with them in this way. It's going to hurt you. Believer, there will be false teachers that you're going to run into today who are seeking to tickle your ears and may have true-sounding teachings that are really meant to enslave you. Don't listen to them. Last Sunday evening, in our evening prayer service, we looked at Colossians 2, and we were able to see how powerless legalism really is, and that these powerless legalists were seeking to make genuine believers feel bad about themselves by hurting them, by hurling old laws that have been fulfilled onto them to make them feel like second-class citizens, like incomplete Christians who only need to keep certain external laws according to what they're teaching To really be saved and to be really a part of God's people and to have a real end. That's what these false teachers were doing. Paul points out that that kind of thing is just persecution from godless false prophets. Don't listen to it. They're hurting you. They're seeking to hurt you. He shows them from the Old Testament exactly what they are falling into when these Judaizers are trying to persecute them by enslaving them under the law. Paul's, Paul's warning the Galatians here, and he's warning us here in Gallatin as well. Will you heed the warning, church? If so, we as a church and as individual Christians in this church should notice when we are undergoing persecution from legalistic, unchristian rules and expectations that are meant to bring us in bondage. If someone teaches or places expectations on you that is not in the Bible or is not a correct application or interpretation from the Bible, then see it and see them for what they really are. Legalists seeking to persecute you like Ishmael persecuted Isaac years before and like the Judaizers were persecuting the Galatians. See it for what they are. Recognize it. So after we notice it, what should we do about it? Once we acknowledge that that kind of false teaching and persecution happens, what do we do next? This leads us to our third and final point, and number three reject, expose, and cast out the legalists. Look with me now in your Bibles to Galatians 4 and verses 30 to 31 for this. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Church, it all comes down to this now. This continued argument comes down to this. Paul has been pressing home the last two chapters really to this final application that we must take to heart. And it's not what Christians are usually comfortable with. So I warn you. Because many believers are taught more by politically correct culture than they are by a doctrinally correct Bible. Most Christians are uncomfortable with confrontation and making stern judgment on people's spiritual condition. Makes people uncomfortable. But Paul is telling the Galatians here, I hope you see, he's telling these believers, and even believers here in our church, First Baptist Church of Gallatin, he's telling us to make strong judgments about false teaching and Judaizers and any false prophets and act fast before it's too late. Because if we don't act fast, if they didn't act fast, they might fully be corrupted by them. Remember? Paul kept lamenting over and over again the fact that he wasn't even sure if his labor over them, all the work that he did, was in vain. Or if they would fall away fully from the gospel. He was worried about that because if they continued on down that path towards the Judaizer, they they would have left the gospel. Paul said if they did not come back to his gospel, then they would be damned. Just like the false teachers that he condemned at the start of this letter in chapter 1. Remember he says... Let them be anathema or accursed. Paul was making a judgment there on those teachers. And if the Galatian believers didn't turn back to the truth, then it would reveal that they were never truly believers to begin with and that they would be damned like the false teachers. The gospel was at stake. This is why Paul made it such a big deal. This is why the gospel is such a big deal here in our church and in our day as well. Because there's lots of false gospels that creep in. There's lots of false gospels that are displayed. Richard Hayes exclaims here, as it relates to this close of the passage, he says, it's a stunning rhetorical moment. Paul saved his ace, his most dramatic argument for the end. If the Galatians have followed Paul's exposition of the allegory, and that's why we spent so much time with that before, by the way, If they follow that, they will not miss the import of this command. Scripture is speaking directly to them now, telling them to throw out the rival missionaries and their converts. And who are these rival missionaries? Rival to the Apostle Paul himself. None other than the Judaizer false teachers, these false preachers. They came proclaiming that they had the good news and the truth, almost like mission, they were missionaries coming. Paul was a missionary before, and then these false missionaries came. But Paul says simply here, throw them out. Don't put up with them. Now, that's a, that may seem really harsh to our ears and our hearts in our modern sentimentalities. But do you realize, maybe this might help in this, That false teachers can actually really, really hurt you and harm you big time. And that legalists who are trying to bind consciences to unbiblical teaching can really hurt Christians bad. I know many of them who've been hurt bad. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you feel that? Because if you did, maybe you wouldn't have that pushback to the confrontational Paul here. Consider Titus chapter 1. And verses 10 through 11 for this also. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Think of the families in this church. The children and the husbands and wives and grandmas and grandpas. Think of the homes. Think of the families. I think of my family. If someone's going to upset them and hurt them and cause problems by teaching them false things, you better believe it. That I'm going to stand up to that. And we should stand up to them as well. And not allow those insidious false teachers to hurt families in our church. That's why God gave pastors to to oversee and be shepherds and to protect and guide the flock. In fact, in Titus, right around this section, he says that the pastors should protect against this false type teaching. We need to follow the biblical worldview and the Bible, not our personal preferences of our culture and sentimentalities. Our culture says to keep the peace at all costs. Don't cause a fuss. The Bible says expose the false teachers and silence them as they are hurting entire families by the false teaching and living. Now, just to be clear, that doesn't mean hurt them or kill them like the mafia. That just means call them out. Show them. Don't allow them to to do it anymore. Speak up. Quit being silent. Quit letting them hurt families. Speak the truth. Be a real friend, not a, manipulative flatterer point out the hypocrisy that's what it means to silence them and if we don't call out the falsehood here then let me tell you church families here in gallatin and our church or associated with our church will be hurt just as much as those families in the island of crete where paul wrote his warnings to titus about and just as much as the families in galatia were being hurt as well That Paul warns about in this letter that we're looking at together. We must be willing to obey God and not man. To promote biblical truth and not fabricated lies. Even if the lies and the false teaching almost sound so good, and they're very popular, and they're gaining popularity, and a bunch of sincere, sweet Christians seem to be getting hoodwinked and duped by it, just like the Galatians. Even if they might be really, really well-known, ear-tickling truths that everybody just flocks to, and you could just wonder, how in the world could anybody go against that? That's just so wonderful. And all these Christians, they just love that kind of thing. They love that kind of sentimentality, even with all that ear tickling, and especially in light of all that ear tickling, we must obey God and not man. We must be careful to even be more vigilant in light of that because there's this insidious, deceptive teaching because it gets so popular and it gets so many Christians worked up and and, and thrown off course. Even genuine Christians could get thrown off course. Remember, if the Apostle Peter could get caught up into this kind of thing, and even Barnabas, the encourager, and other Jewish believers in the church of Antioch, as we saw in Galatians 2, and if real, actual Galatian Christians who received the gospel from the Apostle Paul himself, I don't know if you know this, but the Apostle Paul is a big deal. He preached the gospel, so them. they got saved by Paul's preaching. He wasn't preaching anything watered down or wrong. He was preaching the truth. But even they got duped here. Even they fell away. They received the Holy Spirit even, it says. But they were getting all tripped up by these false teachers. Then I want to say, if that is all true, then don't you think that we can get duped too here today by legalistic preachers who tell us unbiblical things and lay unbiblical burdens and expectations on us? Like the Judaizers expecting circumcision and for them to... Partake of holy days and Sabbaths and only eat kosher foods and all these things. We have our own legalisms today that somebody might put on you. And the real determining factor is it in the Bible. Is that an implication or a truth in the Bible? And if it's not, it's legalism and you need to cast it away. You don't listen to that kind of teaching. All this false teaching is based on false expectations and rather than giving ear to it and being polite with it and just kind of tolerating it and and swallowing it hook, line and sinker what we need to do is not tolerate that kind of thing and that extra biblical expectation Paul tells us to call it out expose it for the gangrene infectious poison that it is to sound the alarms of the danger to shockingly even call a spade a spade, to point to the slavery of law-keeping, to point to the bondage and prison of it all, and to further display the glory of the gospel, because the gospel says, we want to put forward the good gospel. Legalism ends in bondage and slavery. The gospel of grace through faith alone, it equals freedom, church. So you choose, believer, Do you want freedom or slavery? Do you want free grace or merit-based works? Do you want heaven or hell? The choice is sharp, but the answer is clear. The gospel is better than legalism because it's freedom, church. It's deliverance from bondage. It's forgiveness of sins. It's cleansing from guilt. It's hope in light of our sin. Choose freedom, not Curse, choose deliverance and fresh grace, not bondage and slavery. Choose Jesus died, buried, and rose again, so that you might put your faith in that gospel and be saved apart from all works or, or, or expectations or anything else by faith alone, by, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Abraham is your father if you are a believer here. And Sarah is your mother through faith, Christians. And the Galatian believers, you see, they were all flipped upside down and confused about what they were to do to be right before a holy God when these new teachers came to town. Weren't they? Really confused. But Paul points once again to gospel motivated justification, as our series title goes, as their only hope. And no matter what their ethnicity, No matter where they were born or what town they're from, their faith alone, through faith alone, Abraham's faith alone, they become what? Children of God. This means that for all of us here today, if we're Christians, if you have trusted Jesus, that you are a child of God through faith. So spot the legalistic persecutors for what they really are. And cast out the legalists who might seek to spy out our freedom. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And where freedom in Christ is at stake, and it's at stake in these things, we must ensure that we expose the false slavery of the false teachers and promote freedom instead. That, church, is what this tough passage is all about. That is what we put our thinking caps on for. So let's believe it, church, and heed it, and glory in it, and let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've revealed here in your word. Thank you for the way that you protect your true sheep, your true children, believers, the way that you protect them, and the way you protected them back in the churches of Galatia as you sent the apostle Paul to care for them and to point them like a good friend to the truth and away from the falsehood of these false (coughs) preachers and teachers. Help us today to spot these legalists. Help us today, Lord, to look to only the genuine gospel for our salvation, for our good. Lord, would you do that? Would you cause us all to embrace that? We say this in Christ's name. Amen.